0: Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ, and I want to thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and learn how to serve and glorify Him. In October and November of 2005, we at the Franklin Church of Christ went through our second annual Fall Focus. That year, the focus was on the family. It was entitled, Built by the Lord. The lesson that you're about to hear was presented to us by Jim Deeson, a brother from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He wants to help us learn how to build the bond between husband and wife. So pull out your Bible, let's turn to God's Word, and learn how to build that relationship between us and our spouse.
1: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. So good to be with you on this beautiful Lord's Day. I don't know where I would rather be. In fact, there is no place I'd rather be. There's absolutely nothing I'd rather be doing than having this time to spend with you as we study together God's Word today. And isn't it a beautiful day? What a day to live. I tell you, this just makes you glad that you're alive. Feel like a young colt, even though you're not. Want to get out and kind of kick up your heels just a little bit. Makes you want to feel like going out playing flag football, you know, in the afternoon. But uh, sometimes my ego writes checks that my body can't cash, and so I can't, I can't do that anymore. But it is good to... See all of you here today, and good to have this opportunity to be with you today. And I'm sorry that Paige couldn't be here. Paige would love to, but uh, she had some bronchitis hit her last uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, and she couldn't come to services. And wasn't able to attend Bible study on Wednesday evening, and then she took somewhat of a setback yesterday, and so she's not feeling well at all today. But I hope and I pray that she'll uh, get ready quickly, and I appreciate and solicit your uh, your prayers. I understand that there's been some things that's been said about my looks by some of the people that are here. I want you to know, as I stand before you, that's not true. And here he is, you know, he's sitting here just shaking his head. I, I know better. But it is good to be with uh, Edwin and, and Marie to, to spend this time with you. I know that you had a wonderful week last week with Brother Mike Waters. Uh, you are very familiar with him. Brother Ken Green will do an outstanding job next uh, next week. But the week following, I don't know what Brother Kavner will do but I'm sure he'll do a great job. Phil and I are real good friends, and I know he's looking forward to being with you. It happens about nine and a half times a minute, 45 times a day. There's a judge that's going to drop his gavel, and he's going to say, Divorce, granted. It's a terrible thing when one million times each year people break their marriage vows, when one million times each year couples and their lawyers bicker back and forth over who's going to get what. Our generation has been called a cut-flower generation and that nothing lasts for long. You see, it's a cartridge philosophy that says that if it doesn't work anymore, what you do is you just throw it away and you get another one. And it's this kind of philosophy that's actually drifted into marriage. And people have the idea that if things just don't work out, then what you need to do is just get rid of it and get another one. For every ten marriages in America, statistics say that five of them are going to end in bitter conflict than divorce. And what a, a terrible thing that is. Those statistics to me are, are, are staggering as well as tragic. But have you ever wondered what happened to the other five? When we talk about divorce statistics, most of the time, we spend our time talking about those people who are divorced and what caused the divorce to take place. And that in itself is another issue, maybe one that needs to be addressed at some point. But, but that's not what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about those other five. I want to talk about those five that don't get divorced. Now, uh, the truth is, all five of these successful marriages, we're going to call them, are going to be successful for a number of different reasons. They're going to be people who will stay together for a lifetime, but I want to suggest to you that of these five, many of them are going to stay together in varying degrees of disharmony. Some couples will remain married simply because of the benefit of the children, for the benefit of the children. I, I've talked to a lot of people over the years who uh, really are just living together because they have children together. And they want to raise those children the very best way they can. Both of them really have lost their love, or at least their love has grown cold for one another, but, but they're grinding it out just so that their children can have a stable home. They see what happens when a couple's divorced. They see what happens to their children. And independently, they don't want that for their children, and so even though they really don't care for one another, they're going to love their children and have to stay together for the sake of the children. Among God's people, there particularly are people who will stay together just simply because they believe that the Bible teaches that it is sin for them to get the divorce outside of fornication. And so there may be a, a, a reluctance, and there is a reluctance to get a divorce because even though they really don't love one another, even though they really sometimes can't stand beside one another, they just kind of pass in the middle of the night, so to speak, in, in their home life. They are not going to get a divorce because they know that if they do, they'll sin against God, and neither one of them will lose their soul, and so they'd rather live in misery here than live in misery in eternity. Then there are are some who will pass the years in relative apathy, separated by a chasm that just they can never really seem to bridge. Sometimes there are couples who who are on the brink of having a good relationship, but they never really quite get there. It seems like they never have that friendship. They never have that companionship. They never have that, that loving relationship. They never were able, once the honeymoon had worn off, they were never able to continue any kind of romantic relationship, but they just simply exist because they get used to one another. Well, only one or two couples out of ten, we're told, actually achieve what I want to call this morning intimacy in their marriages, wherein they really share a lifelong bond of friendship. But well, that understanding is there, that companionship, that compassion is there. And what I want to say to you this morning is that you can be among that top 10 or 20 percent. And those are the ones that I want to focus on this morning because we're talking about building the bond between husband and, and wife. And, you know, I'm looking out in the audience of uh, of some 150 people perhaps and, And some of you have hair as gray as mine. And that means that you've been married at least as long, and many of you perhaps longer than I have. My wife and I celebrated this last May 4th, our 32nd anniversary. And the reason that we are able to celebrate our 32nd anniversary is I've got to tell you, and she's not here to defend herself, so I'm in good shape, that it's because I think I married the most wonderful woman in all the world. Now, I hope that all of you men feel that way about your wife, but I definitely feel that way about mine. And she's taught me a lot about marriage and a lot about the things that are essential to having a good marital relationship. And there are five of them. And I want to share them with you this morning very quickly and then the lesson will be yours. I want to suggest to you, first of all, that if you want to have the kind of relationship that God would have you to have, and, and that I think most people really want, if you want intimacy in your marriage, the first thing that's going to have to be there is that it's going to have to be a Christ centered home. Psalm 127 in verse 1 says, "...unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it." And I recognize that in that context he wasn't talking specifically about the family relationship, but I'll tell you that the imagery is drawn from the family relationship. "...unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it." Talking about the church in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11, Paul said, "...for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is life, which is Jesus Christ. There are other people outside of Christendom who develop good relationships with their spouses, but none can ever be so good as that relationship that is centered upon God, that is centered upon Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 tells us that God not only created man, but that He created the marriage relationship. When He said, for this reason... Shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? Well, these 20-something words. God established the marital relationship. And 6,000 years have passed. And in the passing of this 6,000 years, I would tell you that every society that's been known to man has built its foundation upon that marital relationship that God established in the Garden of Eden. From the very beginning, He established that it would be so. Now, who knows man better than the one who created him? And who knows marriage better than the one who designed it for man in the first place? And so the home that is going to be centered around Christ is going to be the kind of home, the home that is going to be governed by the Lord is going to be the kind of home that can develop this intimacy in marriage that I'm talking about. And a home that is centered around Christ is going to be a Bible-centered home. It's going to be a home where the Bible is read, where the Bible is studied, where the Bible is followed. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to see that God's roles for the home are going to be the roles that are going to be found there. In Ephesians 5 and verse 23... The Bible says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. In verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. In chapter 6 and verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. These are God's roles for the home. And as long as men follow God's roles, they're head and shoulders ahead. But you know, not only should we think about the passages that deal directly with the home as being uh, instructions for the home. But there are other passages that the Bible gives us that though they are not specifically addressed to the home, they certainly find their greatest application there. For example, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, which has already been alluded to in the uh, service this morning. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in chapter 5 in verse 3, and then in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle and those who hunger thirst for righteousness and the merciful and the poor pure in heart and and the peacemakers, and even those who, in verse 10, are persecuted. Where can you find better instruction for the home than in these passages? Because when right behavior is found in a husband or is found in a wife, that brings people closer to God, and as you're brought closer to God, you're also brought closer to one another. My Bible is also turning. I'm turning my Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, and verse 22 where Paul gives us what's called the fruit of the Spirit, and he lists them as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things are wonderful attributes in in a spouse, wonderful attributes in a husband or, or a wife. These are the kind of things, because they help bring us closer to God, help bring us closer to one another. And so what I'm telling you is, that the couple that depends upon the scriptures for their solutions to the stresses of living have a distinct advantage over those people who have no faith at all. Another very important part of being having a God-centered home is having our homes filled with prayer. In the book of First Thessalonians, chapter five, and verse seventeen, the Bible says, "Pray without ceasing." How can we do that as husband and wife? How can we do that independently of one another uh, entirely? I'm sure that if if your home is like mine, there are plenty of times when we pray independently of one another. But but how can we really have the home that God would have us to to have without having the kind of prayer life that would bring us together? In the book of James chapter 5 verse 16, the Bible says the effectual private prayer or the effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now if you'll turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, you'll see that Peter recognizes this as well in 1 Peter chapter 3 after he's talked about the role of the woman in the first six verses, he turns to the husband in verse 7 and says, "...you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and granted honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered." You see, the Apostle Peter, it seems understood and assumes the fact that husband and wife are going to pray together. And that when there is conflict between a husband and wife, the prayer life is not what it ought to be. I, I'm here to tell you that when you're having a fuss with your wife, it's hard to pray like you ought to. And it's certainly hard to pray together uh, when, when you're having conflict in the marriage. But when that conflict is resolved, when prayer is used in the resolving of conflict, and when prayer is offered uh, at the resolution of conflict, and when prayer is offered on a daily basis, then what happens is a couple is drawn together. Because daily prayer together is that steady brick-by-brick construction that provides a safe haven for genuine intimacy with God and genuine intimacy with one another. In good times and bad times, in moments of anxiety and in moments of praise, we share a privilege of talking directly to our Heavenly Father in prayer. And there's no appointment that is ever needed to enter into His throne room. There's always something special about prayer between husband, wife, and God that can't be found anywhere else. It creates a spiritual connection. It creates an accountability. It's a holy bond that brings us strength and stability to our relationship. Prayer can revitalize any relationship, and particularly our relationships as husband and wife. A a, a relationship that is centered around God is also going to be centered around regular worship. You know, the book of Hebrews chapter 10, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, our attendance in in worship, and normally when we come to this passage, we think of it in terms of of talking to our brethren about how important it is for them to attend every service of the church, and and in fact, that is, I think, a great application of this passage. But if we want to take just a few moments and and lift it out of that context and place it in another where it has just as, as strong an application, Think about its effect on the home. Let us consider, let us hold fast the confession of our, of our hope without wavering for He who promises faithful. And let us, stimulate how to, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. Think in terms of this passage with regard to the family. As a husband, will get up early on the Lord's Day morning and the wife will not be far behind. And they begin to make preparations for a day of worship. And they get the children ready. They come to Bible classes and they worship in an assembly like this. And they go home and have a good afternoon of rest and relaxation and then come in together on Sunday evening to close the day out in another period of worship to God. You know what that does? That brings a family closer together. It brings a a, a larger spiritual family closer together when we do that. But it also brings our immediate fleshly families closer together when we spend time regularly worshiping God. Can you imagine the messages that it sends when we don't do that? Then God-centered worship is going to be centered around also faithful service. Turn your Bibles with me, if you will, to... First Timothy chapter 4, and, and look very briefly here at this passage, beginning in verse 11. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. Paul told Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery.' Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. As you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Think about this passage as instruction to a father for a moment. And so what he's going to do is, he's, or rather not a father, but a, a husband. Let's, it will save the father for tonight. Uh, think about this passage from the standpoint of a husband. He is the example that he needs to be to his wife in everything that he is, in his speech, in his conduct, in his love, in his faith, in his purity. He's going to be a good example of a believer to his wife. He's going to give attention to the reading of Scripture. Here is a man who's not going to neglect the spiritual gifts that God has given him, but he's going to be using them to be able to serve whomever he may serve as he has has the opportunity and... And his wife can see this kind of example in him, an example of daily service to the Lord. He he takes great pains and great care with being a Christian, and actually she sees that his wife is absorbed in being everything God would have him to be. Do you think that kind of a man is going to draw the thinking, draw the relationship of his wife with his wife closer to him because she sees in him the kind of man that she can admire and the kind of man who leads his family spiritually. Again, what I want to say to you, if you and your mate are genuinely wanting to experience God's best for your marriage, a relationship characterized by true love and genuine intimacy, it's got to be centered around Christ. And it's got to be centered around these things. The second thing I want to share with you is the fact that if your relationship is going to be what God and you would want it to be hopefully, it's going to have to be centered around a lifelong commitment. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6, Jesus said, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The thing that commitment reminds me of the story I once heard of a contract lawyer. He had just gotten married and... I was just planning on getting married, and they came to the wedding day, and, and the minister got up to repeat the vows or to say the vows to the young man. And he asked him, he says, do you take this woman for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health? And that preacher was startled when the groom replied as he thought, yes, no, yes, no, no, and Yes. You see, a lot of people are like that. They they want only the better parts of a relationship and don't want the worst part. In another wedding ceremony, an actual wedding ceremony, one bride and groom pledged to stay married as long as they continue to love each other. You know, it's occurred to me when I heard about those two stories that I really hope that they have the divorce lawyers because they're probably going to need them with that kind of attitude. I saw a survey not long ago where there were older couples that had been interviewed, people who had close relationships, who had been married for a long time, and they were asked the secret of such an intimate relationship. How did you how did you develop this relationship? How have you gotten to this point in your life? Two of those responses are pretty good. One of them said, Marriage is no fairy tale land of enchantment. But you can create an oasis of love in the midst of a harsh world by grinding it out and sticking in there. The second one said, perfection doesn't exist. You have to approach the first few years of marriage with a learner's permit to work out your incompatibilities. It is a continual effort. That doesn't sound very romantic, does it? It doesn't sound very romantic. But I want to tell you something. It does carry the wisdom of experience. You see, it's naive to think that two unique and sometimes strongly different people will come together without any conflict at all. I had a teacher one time in college that said he and his wife had never had an argument. The first thought that came to my mind was that he's either a liar or a coward one. Now, I suppose, and and I'm... I'm sure that there have been people, perhaps even some here tonight, who have, uh, this morning, have never had a fuss or an argument with your wife. But I cannot make that claim. My wife is perfect, but I'm not, you see. And, and so any argument that we have around the house is always my fault. I know that. After 32 years of marriage, I, I understand that. But also know this that being able to learn to resolve conflict in marriage, the thing that's necessary to do that is the fact that you're committed to a relationship and that you're not willing and are not going to to give up. You know, love can be defined in a myriad of ways. But in marriage, love is defined as this, a promise to be there for all your days. It's a promise that says, I'm going to be there when you lose your job, when you lose your health, when you lose your parents, when you lose your lips, when you lose your confidence, when you lose your friends. It's a promise that tells your partner, I'll build you up, I'll overlook your weaknesses, I'll forgive your mistakes, I'll put your needs before my own, I'll stick by you when the going gets tough. It's that kind of commitment that is absolutely essential to help you make it through life's stuff, and down. You've got to have that commitment. I don't know what has happened, but ever since Edwin asked me to be a part of, of this study, it seems like I've turned into more of a marriage counselor than I ever was before that point in time. I, I, I've always had people come from time to time with marriage problems, but it seems like that I've just been absorbed with them, and particularly in the last two months. This Friday night, It's past Friday night, a night that we typically reserve for a family night. We were with a young couple that, for for three and a half hours, I'd spent almost 17, 15, 17 hours with them, not counting the times that I had been thinking about them, uh, the whole week. And this kind of just kept it off. And and, and I've been with them a lot over the last two months, trying to help help them make it. To be honest, I do not know if they're going to make it or not. I just really don't know. And one of the reasons is because I don't think they've been sending one... In fact, I know they haven't been sending one another the right signals. They've been married only two and a half years. It's a blended family situation. And, and what has happened is about a year ago, maybe a little bit less than a year ago, while they were having a fuss, the young lady developed a platonic relationship with another man. It never got beyond the platonic relationship, it doesn't seem, and that jury's still out to tell you truth. But the truth of the matter is, is that when she did that, it was as if, well, you know, if our relationship goes sour that I can always find somebody else. And that was the clear message that it sent to her husband. And now that they're still having conflict, every now and then what will happen is it'll get a little bit tough and she'll leave the house and she'll go home to Mama. What is that saying? What kind of message is that send? I'm not committed to this relationship. And just the other day, instead of having her move out, what happened is that things got a little bit rough and so what he did is he went home to Mama. You know what kind of lessons that there, or messages that's sending? It's sending messages to one another that this, this relationship may come to an end, and I've got choices, and I can do other things. I grew up in a broken home. My mother and my father, my father was considerably older than my mother, but they lived together for 20 years before they ever divorced. And I told myself, just as a young boy, I said, divorce is not going to be a word that's going to be in my vocabulary as far as my relationship with whomever I marry, maybe. And then when I met my wonderful wife and we started talking about marriage, I told her, I said, divorce is not a word in my vocabulary. Murder, maybe, but not divorce. Not divorce. And it never has been. There has to be commitment to the marriage. If you've got that commitment, then you can work through your problems. What happens is is people lose that commitment, and then it becomes more difficult to work through the problems, if not impossible. But you've got to have that lifelong commitment if you want to develop uh, that kind of relationship. Brother D. Bowman uh, tells uh, the story of a man who... Uh, had been uh, married for, I think, 50 or 60 years. And he was asked the secret to staying married so long. And what he said was this. He said, 60 years ago, I made a promise and have always kept it. And that's the that kind of commitment we've got to have. If you want to build a bond between you and your spouse, you've got to have a God-centered home and you've got to have a lifelong commitment. You also have to have... A deep and abiding trust in First Corinthians chapter thirteen and verse seven. I particularly like the New International Version translation of this passage because in describing love, love, it says, "Love always protects, always trusts." King James New American Standard. I think this believes all things, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Every individual faces this critical question really on a daily basis. Do I trust my partner or not? Now, we may not be aware that that uh, question is before us, but even so, uh, we answered in everything we do, and we answered in everything we say, do I really trust my spouse? Relationships that are dominated by fear and insecurity relationships that are really going to have a hard time making it. There has to be trust in, in a spouse if you're going to have an intimate relationship. And trust is built in one of two ways, or actually in both of two ways, I should say. Trust is something that's earned. It can be given to a degree in the very beginning, but it's also something that is earned over a period of time. And it's earned, first of all, by what you say. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 29, the Bible says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is as good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. How important it is for the speech that we offer to our, our spouse. The speech that is directed by what the Apostle says here. The kind of of words that are good for the edification of of our spouse. We we want to build a relationship with our spouse, not destroy it in a way. So our speech ought to be in view of that. You know, everything we say is often said with the idea of of a certain response that we want to uh, bring about. And, And so we want to build our relationship up. We want to edify it. And so let the words that we speak, be designed to do that. The problem is, about this time of year, uh, most every group of people this size, we're going to start having parties around the house. And, you know, we're going to start having friends in. That's a wonderful thing. I love to be invited to those kind of things. I love to be a part of those those kind of things. But I've also been in some of those situations where I've been made just as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Because what happens is, is that there's some couple that begins to play the game that I call assassinate your spouse. And so they begin to cut one another. And and, and they begin to say things that embarrass the other. Don't do that. Because that destroys a relationship. That eats away at the very foundation, at the very fabric of the relationship. And you may not see the, the difference by the time you get home, and you may. But you'll see it over a period of time. And trust will be destroyed. The second thing that's essential to building trust is not just in what you say, but also in what you do. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. The Bible says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as wise, not as unwise men, but as wise. You know, words and the way you use them are are terribly significant, but the surest way to establish trust is, is in your actions. And you've got to build a record of choices and deeds that proves to your partner that you can be trusted at all times, especially in regards to the relationship that you have with members of the opposite sex. I want to tell you this morning that you need to build a hedge around your home. By talking with your partner about your interactions with those of the opposite sex, and you need to establish sensible, sensitive guidelines in that regard, and never violate them. My wife and I have done that over the years, because we know of what the kind of things that destroy trust in, in a relationship. Some couples, in talking about this, rule out things like lunch with a female coworker or male coworker, whichever the case may be, or or traveling together with someone of the opposite sex, or, or talking alone with someone like this behind closed doors, or sharing rides, or even sometimes working as a couple, particularly in close quarters in, in times like this. So you've got to establish strong guidelines. In, in our relationship, we, we decided that one thing I was not going to do was get involved in counseling someone of the opposite sex when she was not present, or when at least there was not other people there. And the times that I violated that have been very, very few, and only when I got caught in a situation that just couldn't help it. Sometimes you just get caught in those situations, not anything you do. But that's a rule, that I do everything I can to live by Why? Because I just don't want to let a barrier down. Do I trust myself? Do I trust my wife? Absolutely. I don't always trust other people. And I want to make sure and establish a, a barrier there so that the relationship with me and my wife can be protected because I cherish that relationship, and I don't want to do anything. don 't want to do a thing that'll violate that trust. Our relationship is sacred and holy, and I want to maintain that. But here's something else: Trust also begins with God. It's only when husbands and wives commit themselves to living according to God's ways that a really deep and lasting bond of trust develops between them. You see? We can give our heart conflict to our spouse when we know that he or she is genuinely seeking to follow God's will and God's way through their lives. I do a lot of traveling, and I've been blessed by God to be able to do that and to be able to speak to a lot of audiences like this. And it's carried me to a lot of places, a lot of places I've never otherwise been able to go. And particularly up until this particular stage in our lives, Paige has not been able to go with me because we had children at home. But there's one thing I've always believed. I've always believed that my honor was safe in her hands. She has always had her trust in me that when I left, I was going to do what God wanted me to do. I was leaving on God's business. And she was attending God's business at home. And because we both believed in the faith of the other, we had trust in one another. And that's absolutely essential to develop the kind of relationship that couples need to have. Jealousy will destroy a marriage. I want to suggest to you also that there needs to be a willingness to communicate. I I could spend a whole lesson on this, and I won't this morning. But, you know, we live in really a strange generation. With the dawn of word processors and computers, we're pumping out more words than ever before, yet, you know, we're really not communicating. And really nowhere is this more true than in marriages. Marriages, those that dissolve, usually do so not because there's not enough things said, it's just simply because there's no communication. There's plenty of verbiage, but there's very, very little communication. But one man said, and I think truthfully so, that communication is to a relationship what blood is to the body. Indeed, it is a very life giving element. And that's something we have got to learn to do. We've got to learn to communicate with our our spouse. And I'll leave it to Edwin to talk with you a lot uh, about that subject. It is an important subject. But I, I will leave you with Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, that says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. You know, the truth of the matter is, that's always been true physically, or it has been true many times physically. And you think about Pontius Pilate, death and life was literally in his power to deliver Jesus to be crucified or to save him. Been plenty of times when death and life were literally in the power of people. But I'm gonna tell you, death and life is in the power of your tongue every single day in every single relationship that you have. You can say things to destroy the relationship you have around you. You can say things to build them up. The choice is yours. So we've got to learn to communicate. And then finally, we'll talk with just a little bit about the fifth thing. And that's, that's important, and that's this. The word romance conjures uh, different images for each of us. Our expectations of what constitutes a romantic relationship sometimes vary. But I'll tell you, if our relationship is going to be as intimate as we want it to be, there has to be an understanding of what romantic love is all about. Women are inclined to describe romance as the things they may, may do to make them feel loved or to make them feel protected or to make them feel appreciated. Men rely usually more on their physical senses in, in the area of, of romance. But the most evocative descriptions of romantic love is, are those that are found in the Song of Solomon in the Bible. For example, in chapter 2 and verse 16, he says, My lover is mine and I am his. She makes that statement. Uh, she also says in chapter 5 and verse 4, My heart began to pound for Him. And you know, you can just see the excitement of a young woman for uh, her lover when she thinks uh, about being in His presence. Uh, you can just see the young man as he replies to her in chapter 4 and verse 1, How beautiful you are, my darling. And what a wonderful statement to make to, uh, to one that you uh, love. In chapter 3 and verse 1, she said, All night long on my bed I look for the one who my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. And so he, here is this, this longing that she had for, uh, for her lover and kind of pining when his presence eluded her. You can just see the excitement that was there in that romance. But the one that I really like is found in chapter 2 and verse 4. He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. I want you to think for just a few moments about that word picture. He's taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Let's look at it, first of all, from the standpoint of the young uh, young man. Uh, the young man, uh, perhaps he's a senior in high school, more, more really in college. He, he's in college, and and he's beginning to think about a little bit longer relationship and maybe one of these days, marriage in the not-too-distant future, and and so what he does is he just look around him and he finds that young lady that just simply appeals to him in every, in every way. I mean, she has a, a, a beautiful looks. So he thinks she's the prettiest thing to ever walk the face of the earth. got a wonderful personality. And, and she's just everything that he really ever dreamed of in a life. And so he musters up the courage, that he, overcoming the fears of rejection, and, and says, will you go to the banquet with me? And, and she says, yes. And so what happens is, is, here he is. He's got her in his arms. And he's walking through the door of that banquet hall and his buttons are about to pop off his chest because he's thinking, man, I've got the bell of the ball. The most beautiful woman in, in, in this whole banquet hall is on my arm and tonight she's mine and I kind of hope she may be mine for the rest of my life. Can you just feel the excitement of that kind? Can you feel his blood pumping? And on the other hand, here's this young lady. Now, she's been looking at the same young man, and she's thought, you know, I really like him. He's just, just as handsome as he can be, and he seems to be a, 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 fine, a, man, a man of fine character. And, and I've been dating some guys that are just not what they ought to be, but I, I, I really think he's got some possibilities. Oh, I, I really just like the way he looks. And so when he comes up and he asks her to go to the banquet with him, he can hardly get the words out of his mouth before she says, Yes, I'll go she's afraid that he might not completely ask her and so she wants to make sure that his fears of rejection are are completely allayed. And so she says, yes, I'll go. And and, and she goes with him. And she's going through the same door now. But this time it's a little bit different because she's thinking, he's asked me. And that means he really thinks I'm special. In fact, He's not only only shown me that he thinks that I'm special, but but the very fact that I'm walking through this door with my arm in his, it's like he's painted this banner over the top of my head. I belong to him. It's like he's painted this banner over my head. I love this woman. Do you see how that makes her feel? His banner over me is love. There's this public display to everybody. This one is mine in a very special way. That should never die in a relationship. That should never die in a relationship. If you've let it die in yours, shame on you. Don't do it. Do whatever it takes to build it back. Begin to date your spouse. Let them know that they are the most important person in all this world in your life. And that'll build a hedge around your marriage. That'll truly be a strong one. One that no other person can ever enter. You can truly have that love that Solomon said in chapter 8 and verse 6, burns like a blazing fire and like a mighty flame. I want you to remember this morning that you can be among that top 10%. You can have the kind of relationship that God would have you to have. You can build that bond of friendship, that bond of understanding, that bond of commitment, that, that bond of companionship that God really wants you to have. You know, speaking from someone who has been married for 32 years, and I'm sure that people like Brother Nash, they've been married a lot longer Brother Sister Nash have than, than I have. But I, I, I've come to really understand this. The older you get, the more companionship means to you in marriage. Early on, that companionship is important. Make no mistake about it. But that companionship, that need for companionship, and that need for that one to be with you is far more important. I'm telling you, the the person that I miss the most this morning is my wife. It breaks my heart that she can't be here not because I want her to be with you, which I do, but I want her to be with me. And I'm glad that we've reached that stage in our life where with our children pretty much gone from home, she can go with me when I travel. Not that I wanted to wish that those other stages away, but, you know, relationships just mature. And you're able to be with one another and grow into the kind of relationship that gets sweeter every single day that you live. May God bless us all to that end.
0: I hope this lesson from our 2005 Fall Focus on the Family, Built by the Lord, was beneficial to you and will help you in your marriage. Let's remember what we learned about building the bond between husband and wife. If we want to build that relationship, we must first have a Christ-centered home. Second, a lifelong commitment. Third, a deep and abiding trust. Fourth, a willingness to communicate. And fifth, an understanding of romantic love. I hope this lesson benefits you. And I encourage you to go to our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. And find our section on the 2005 Fall Focus on the Family. We have several other lessons there that can benefit you regarding your home and your family. Perhaps somebody has given you the CD. If so, again, I encourage you to head to that website. We have not only lessons on the family, but on all kinds of topics that will help you serve and glorify God. Again, that website is franklinchurchofchrist.com. If you have any questions about the family or about our family at the Franklin Church of Christ or about how to serve God and glorify Him, please give us a call, 615-794-2359. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him, but more importantly, may you richly bless God.